All right, we're live. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Elevate Your Grind, brought to you by the Cannabis Lab. As always, I am your host, Todd Rosales. Well, folks, it's uh, summertime, and we are coming up on our 50th episode of this little show. Um, I don't know the exact count. Uh, this is the first show we're doing this week. We have two next week. So I'd say we're somewhere around episode 46 right now. So I really appreciate everybody tuning in and watching and, and keeping the show going. A huge shout out to all the guests that have been on the show and, and really making this possible. Um, you know, I always talk that it amazes me the quality of guests that we can get on this show. Um, you know, we've had Ricky Williams, we have Cody Sanchez, Bestavola, Brady Cobb, uh, Dave Daly, and, and those are just the ones that come to the top of my mind, just to name a few people. But, you know, this is starting to come into a place where people in the cannabis industry want to come, they want to sit down with us, and, and they want to talk. So I am very happy that that is coming, uh, it, that this show is becoming that, and I'm excited to continue to do it for you. However, in order to continue doing this show, we really need you guys to follow us and subscribe to us, right? We love that you're watching the video. The views are incredible. But what really helps us out is you folks at home subscribing. So you, right there, I see you. You're watching this video. You're enjoying this video. You're learning something from this video. Do me a favor. Go to YouTube. Search for Elevate Your Grind. Click on the like button on the videos and please subscribe. Please subscribe. For those of you that go, for the next 20 people who subscribe to our YouTube channel, I will give you one of these. Go subscribe to our YouTube video and we will give out a $25 Cureleaf gift card. has your name on it. We'll select the winner before the end of the week. But please go and subscribe to the YouTube page. Find us on Instagram at the Cannabis Lab and find us on Facebook at Cannabis Business Group. Go subscribe and we promise we'll get you something in the mail. All right. Um, with that being said, we've got a great uh, month of programming for you. Today's guest is absolutely amazing. And you know, even if I've announced it in the past, uh, I'm not going to mention who today's guest is until we're ready to speak to them. So we'll keep that one in the books. But she, we'll go with it this way. She is a titan in the industry. She is an OG. She is a titan. And I'm extremely excited to talk to her in just a few minutes. But we also have a great guest tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're going to go back to the topic of investing. And we have from our investment panel back last month, Emily Paxia from Poseidon Partners. Um, next week, we have Ryan G. Smith from LeafLink. Another one I'm really excited about was going to be Socrates Rosenfeld from Jane Technologies. And listen, I'm, it's not that I'm not excited about all our guests, but I use Jane all the time down here in Florida. Um, they're, they're very key for our delivery business. So really excited about that. Um, We've got Alex Milligan from Nug the following week or the following day on the 15th. And then July 21st, we have uh, Carson Humiston from Banks. So really great guests coming up. And then actually, we're going to be doing the 50th episode on Friday, July 17th. There's special meaning in that to me. Uh, we don't know what that's going to be, but I think we're going to have some special guests for you and it's going to be a lot of fun. So definitely tune into that. All right. Now that we've got all my homework out of the way. My guest today, as I mentioned before, is a titan in the industry. Probably one of the biggest names we've had on the show as far as the importance of who's in the cannabis space. And I'm not talking about the people who self-promote and the people that show up at every conference. This is someone who probably gets begged to come to conferences and probably has been invited to so many that at this point, she's probably thinking, all right, how can I get out of this next one, right? But she has been awarded so many awards that I didn't have enough room to write them down. She's been in publications so long that I couldn't keep scrolling to see how many articles were featured on her, but she is one of the first, if not the first, true 
cannabis attorney. Please welcome the chair of the cannabis practice and partner at Green Spoon Martyr, Rachel Gillette. Hello, everybody. Good to see you. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, I think it's funny you said, hey, I could have done this show or I could have done an hour of work. So I really appreciate you you joining us in today. Um, you know, wow, you, you've it, 10 years in the cannabis space. You know, I, I made the joke that that you've been doing this for 75 years because everyone says cannabis is like dog years. But you were truly there at the beginning of the legal cannabis market uh, problems aside, we know we need we need so many different things to happen for the cannabis market to need to get to where it's going. But as someone who was there at the beginning, what's it like now, 10 years later, to see so many states have legal programs and people being able to walk into a dispensary and buy it and use it the way that it was intended? I mean, talk to me, talk to me about how that feels before you get into everything that's wrong with the industry. Uh, it feels really good, obviously, to have legal cannabis in so many states. But what I have to say is I'm still wondering if cannabis is going to be federally legal within the next five years. And I said that 10 years ago. And unfortunately, I'm still saying it today. So, you know, when once Colorado was the first state to legalize cannabis in 2012, we had the vote in November of 2012, Amendment 64. Um, you know, people called me up and they said, oh, now that cannabis is legal, are you still going to have a job? Is there still going to be work to do? And the answer is that we have a lot more work to do. Obviously we have a lot more states uh, that need legal cannabis programs, including medical cannabis. And we obviously have a huge challenge uh, with regard to federal legalization um, and also issues such as tax um, banking. Those are still major challenges for the industry, uh, social equity, so we've got a lot of things that we still have to do as advocates. Um, and that's what I always say I am. I'm an advocate before an attorney, but I'm an attorney also. So, so thank you for giving an outline of, of today's programming, because those are definitely the things that we want to talk about today. And, and let's go back to that. So I read, you know, way back when that you've been an advocate since the 80s. And it was uh, Peter Tosh's Legalize It that really got you going on your path. Was that just a story for a good article or, or was that the truth? Talk to us. Take us back to the beginning. Well, you did some research. I'll say that. I have always a been a bit. huge reggae music. Um, and I actually, believe it or not, had dreadlocks for 10 years of my life, my adult life. Oh, wow. So I have um, my passion for the legalization of cannabis obviously came when I was in high school. Um, and you know, Peter Tosh, I don't know if you've listened to his music lately, but it's, he's got some pretty amazing music out there. Um, and, uh, legalize it being one of the greatest songs ever, but I mean, that was written so long ago. Um, and yet we still have, you know, he identified those issues that we all now are, are, um, dealing with today and what cannabis is good for. So, um, so yes, I've always thought that legalization was the right thing to do. I've always recognized that there was this sort of, the drug war was not going to work. And it, even though you prohibit something, people are still going to want to uh, participate. And so there had to be a better way than the, the drug war, which we're still unfortunately in. Um, so I decided to focus my life on my passion. Um, I kind of did everything backwards, believe it or not. I didn't graduate law school or undergrad even until I was 30. 
Um, wow. Because I had kids as a as a as a young per, younger person when I was 21, I had my my kids, so they're in their 20s now. Um, so uh, graduated law school in my mid 30s, and uh, it just so happened that I graduated during the recession, um, the Great Recession, which was in 2007, and um, you know it was not the most um, the best job market at the time. Yeah. I actually. Be- my legal career working in a tax practice, uh, which I didn't really like the environment, but I learned a lot of um, knowledge from that experience. And when cannabis was going to, um, well, I should say the state of Colorado decided that it was going to license um, for-profit medical marijuana businesses in 2010 under House Bill 10 uh, I saw an opportunity, which was to represent these these new things that were going to be cannabis businesses. Now, remember that California, even though California was the first state to pass medical uh, yeah. cannabis back in, I think it was 1995, if I recall. I, was, I voted in 94, I was, 95, but yeah. we don't have to have accurate stats on the show. Don't worry. <laughs> but even though that occurred, remember California until very recently had operated under this nonprofit model. So Colorado truly was the first state to actually allow for these, you know, for-profit medical marijuana businesses. Um, and then obviously we passed Amendment 64 in 2012 that was implemented in 2014. And uh, at the time, there weren't a lot of lawyers that were interested in, uh, you know, representing people that wanted to be in the cannabis industry. It was sort of there. I mean, I I still say there remains somewhat of a stigma, but, you know, it was sort of one day I was a criminal and the next day, magically, the state waves the magic wand and I'm an entrepreneur. Um, (laughs) So um, it's it's been really interesting. But the nice thing is that I I had this sort of vision of of representing cannabis businesses and people that wanted to be in the cannabis space. And there weren't a lot of firms at the time that were willing to get into that space. So it was um, there was a lot of work to be done and uh, not a lot of people that were willing to take the chance because, believe it or not, uh, my my law school professor told me I was going to lose my law license by representing cannabis businesses. Wow. Am I frozen? That, 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 that's a, first of all, it's an absolute incredible story that, you know, you, you went on a different right. journey and, and ended up, ended up kind of back exactly where you wanted to be. Right. You know, you, 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 you had kids and, and you, you were able to track yourself back to you being a cannabis advocate. And I think the best lawyers are the advocates, right? Because at the end of the day, what an advocate a lot of times does is, is, figures out the legal system and looks into the laws and, and figures out how they can lobby for it and everything else. You just took it a step further where you can actually take action on it instead of just, you know, raising awareness, right? There are steps that you can take to really make change and let that be a lesson. You know, part of this podcast is, is hopefully to be a little bit motivational, little bit right? Motivational, you know, right? I told you this, you know, this I told is you a, this side, a side gig for me and, you know, I, I'm hoping that people see some, some, you know, middle-aged guy in his office with a webcam having a show and maybe they'll get inspired to do their own thing. But you're even much more of a success story, right? Because you didn't go into law right out of school. You, you had a family first and everything else. And now you're one of the top attorneys in the space because you saw an opportunity and you capitalized on it. Did you happen to live in Colorado at the time? You know, was it right place at the right time? Or did you move to Colorado to get involved in this? I actually did live in Colorado, so funny story, if you want to go way back, 
when I was 18, sure. when I was in high school, I raced mountain bikes. And I actually was very passionate about it. I applied to two colleges. One was Fort Lewis College in Durango, Colorado, which was one of the best places you can ride your mountain bike. And one wow. was in West Virginia. I chose to go to Fort Lewis, uh, but I quickly learned that I had other interests. Um, so I literally dropped out of school, sold all my belongings, much to my mother's dismay, and hitchhiked to Telluride, Colorado, where I spent the next, uh, let's see, five or six years. Um, <laughs> so I kind of played the ski bum part a little bit too. Um, but I loved Colorado. I moved here when I was 18. I had a couple small forays into San Diego and also into uh, for Connecticut for law school. But I've always come back to Colorado. I like to say I grew up in Colorado, which is I wasn't born or raised here, but I grew up here mentally. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's been a uh, it's been a great journey. I love this state. I really do. And, and I love the people here and I love the outdoors and the beauty of it. So I did. I was in Colorado and I, I actually got my law license in Connecticut, still licensed there in 2007. But then in 2008, I took the bar again uh, and got licensed in Colorado so that I could practice here. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been here ever since. But my, my youngest or my oldest son was born in Telluride, Colorado. Very, very cool. Well, I, I mean, it's funny, and, and I want to get into your expertise in a little bit, but, you know, I, I, I didn't realize how interesting your story was when, you know, when you talk to, to people now, and obviously you said you played the part of the ski bum, and now you're one of the top attorneys in the cannabis space, and, and obviously, clearly very successful, you know, to me, and I think people don't realize this, you were kind of following what you love, and then eventually you got to a point where you can combine what you love into a profession that can be, you know, lucrative and you just ran with it. Right. So, you know, I think it takes time for people to be able to find that intersection of what they love and what they can do to make money with it. Um, you know, what are those conversations like with the people who knew you as the ski bum now that now see you as Rachel Gillette, one of the biggest, you know, attorneys in the cannabis space? I mean, it's weird. It's interesting, but weird. I actually, I have a funny story about my law school professor. So when I started my practice, I was, I quit my job. I said, I called up my favorite law school professor. Um, and I said, Hey, I'm going to start a practice focusing on representing marijuana businesses and people that want to be in the industry. And I'll never forget where I was. I was in the Denver international airport and she, 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 was, she, you could hear this collective <gasps> and she goes, you're going to lose your law license. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. So let's just fast forward. So I, I kind of was like, okay, she said I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I ran my practice for a couple of years. Amendment 64 passed. I sent her an email and I said, Professor Meyer, I, I'm still here. We just legalized adult use. Isn't this crazy? My practice is going well. Just wanted to catch up. She never responded. She responded last year to wow. that email. Okay. And then invited me to my law school to teach a class because they were teaching their very first cannabis law class. And so I, I flew out there and I actually taught a class on cannabis law um, to, at my old law school. And I sort of noted, I was like, just so you know, Professor Meyer responded to my email eight years later. 
eight years after I sent it. So she will keep your email. So be very careful about what you say in an email. But it's a funny story. It's like full circle. And she sort of, it was sort of like, hey, you were kind of right. You, you didn't that's, lose your love. That is absolutely. That's absolutely awesome. And the only thing that could have made it better is if she responded by saying, sorry for the delayed response, um, you know, eight years yeah. later. <laughs> um, so yeah. cannabis gets legalized. You have your own firm. I, I imagine the early days in Colorado are nothing like, you know, the, 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 the industry today, right? With these multi-state operators, it's becoming somewhat corporate and we can get into, to, you know, some of these too big to fail companies eventually. But I imagine that it was a bunch of younger entrepreneurs. It wasn't, you know, a bunch of rich people trying to capitalize on an industry. It was people that were coming from the traditional market that were trying to become legitimate. What were the early cannabis companies like? And I imagine Colorado probably went through a few iterations of its program to find one that works. Um, you know, talk to us about the beginning days and, and what those days were like before it's now everybody's creating cannabis practice now because it's the next cryptocurrency. Right. So, I mean, what you have to understand is these were very, very brave people because these were people that were risking arrest and law enforcement action. Um, they were risking seizure of their property and their land because at the time that Colorado, and in fact, it was happening in California too, where people were operating these collectives to be able to provide medical cannabis to patients that legitimately were being helped by medical cannabis. We can't forget the roots of all of this too, as far as yeah. when we came yeah. to medical cannabis sort of collective model or helping or caregiving model as it was in Colorado to where we are now. Um, but it was legitimate people who were passionate, very passionate about providing cannabis. I can't say that they didn't have entrepreneurial spirit because they certainly did. If there's a way that you can legitimize what everybody has been doing for a long time in buying and selling cannabis because the demand's there and, and it was happening, um, then that was great. But people were very um, brave at the time because they're literally were putting their names on a piece of paper. And at the time, and this has changed in Colorado, the marijuana enforcement division was sort of, you know, they went out, the state hired a bunch of cops to run this sort of marijuana enforcement division. And yeah. the, the, the sort of the mentality was, oh, you know, we're going to catch them doing something bad. We're going to set up all these rules and we might catch them doing something bad. I think that that mentality has changed quite a bit in, in our regulatory authority, actually, in Colorado, which is a good thing. Um, but it took a couple of years before they even licensed the first business because they couldn't actually figure out how to go about it. Did they have to interview everybody, you know, as if they were being sort of interviewed for a crime yeah. <laughs> or did it kind of interrogated, like not interviewed? They have to do what's the federal government going to do? There was so much just nobody knew what was going to happen. And I think to some extent, the state thought that they could get in trouble. So, you know, like, hey, we're, we, we did this. Our legislature voted on this and we did this. And then later on, the people voted on legalization of recreational marijuana. But there was this collective sort of, what is the federal government going to do? And, uh, you know, subsequent to Washington and Colorado legaling, legalizing adult use is when we got the Cole Memorandum and the first sort of, um, you know, sort of tacit, hands-off sort of approach from the federal government, at, at least 
to some extent. Um, although we had it for, for um, medicals too, that they weren't necessarily going to inter intervene in medical, you know, providing medical marijuana to medical patients. But I mean, this, they were brave people that were, that were applying for those licenses. And, um, you know, thank goodness that they had, you know, that passion um, to yeah. do it because I don't think yeah. I stood up and said, no, 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 we need to legalize this. We need to do this. This is the right thing to do. Um, I don't know that we'd be where we are today. And it just sort of snowballed from there. Yeah, it's, you know, yeah, we've, you know, we've always got to go back and thank those people, right? I, I worked with right. a colleague at a former I'll job, his name, former I'll job shout him name. out by name I'll here because him. I love him, Ryan Michaels. Um, he worked in one of the first dispensaries, or owned one of the first dispensaries out in California. You know, he always had to deal with, with potentially uh, people coming in the feds rating him and everything else. And he has the scars on his back that a lot of these companies are, are building upon now. So, you know, those first entrepreneurs, they didn't know what they were getting themselves into. And, and they built the foundation for us along with people like you. So, you know, it must have been crazy given those early days when I would imagine those entrepreneurs don't exactly have the highest level of trust, especially for people of authority, right? Maybe for legal counsel, it's another story, but here you come in. I know you have the background, right? You played the ski bum part, but you are, you're an attorney. You're very official. You're very professional. You know, how were those interactions and, you know, especially telling them, Hey, I, I've, I've read through all your stuff and, and you're very big, keep great business records. I mean, in an interview, you probably repeat it five or six times. So I can imagine you can only repeat it more to your clients. How did that go over in the early days when you were talking to people that were used to making sure that nothing got recorded? Well, you have to realize things evolved, right? I mean, because at first when you had this sort of collective, what is the federal government going to do? Is the federal government going to come in with their tanks and their weapons and their military style weapons and raid everybody in Colorado that is operating, quote, legally? Um, you know, things have evolved. And at first, and this, is, this became a problem in a lot of my tax cases, uh, people didn't want to keep business records because they didn't want to have those records sort of sitting around for the federal government yeah. to come in. Yeah all the evidence they need to arrest them or prosecute them. Um, and that was especially true in years like 2008 and 2009. I think in 2010, when the state sort of stepped in and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to regulate this, and the federal government sort of start, started to take a step back, although they, they didn't do it as much as they should have probably, um, you know, people started saying, well, not only is the state going to require me to keep business records, but maybe I should keep business records because it could lead to a significant tax issue. Because at the same yeah. time, we started yeah. to see in 2008, 2009, uh, the IRS start auditing these companies. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a lot of fear, like, okay, is the IRS going to tell everybody what I do? And, you know, how should I approach an audit of a cannabis company? And, um, so, but business records are beneficial in an audit, actually, especially yeah. if you're a cash intensive yeah. business. Um, but we have evolved quite a bit. And so we started to see people understand that there could be uh, sort of financial and economic consequences as a result of not keeping good business records. And therefore, maybe they should. Um, and, and we started to breathe a little bit of sigh of relief that the federal government wasn't going to continue to, to raid and arrest people. 
at least in our yeah. state. Um, so, I mean, we breathe a sigh I mean, of relief, and, and then we see, you know, an article comes out that says, uh, you know, the uh, bar is investigating marijuana mergers just because he has a bias. But, you know, I think that's going to be a problem that we're always going to deal with. Um, you know, and we, we don't have to touch on that. I know it probably rubs people the wrong way to, to bring that into it. I want to focus more on your expertise, right? So I started in the cannabis space about a year ago. And I started out by going to every single conference that you can possibly go to. And at every conference, there was always a panel on 280E, 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 280E. Since that time, I don't see it being talked about as much, but I also don't remember, and I could be wrong, that it hasn't gone away yet. Can you explain to people why that um, tax code is so important to our industry and why it actually hinders a lot of businesses from being able to be um, profitable and successful? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really punitive tax treatment is what it is. So I'll just give you a little bit of history in a nutshell about 280E. 280E was passed in 1982 by Congress as sort of a response to a tax court case where essentially a guy who was, uh, let's just say he was a drug dealer for lack of a better word, he sold cocaine and cannabis and all sorts of other things. But anyway, he had been audited and um, he decided that he thought he was entitled to claim his expenses as deductions on his tax return. And uh, the he actually won in tax tax court, and wow. so he was able to take all his deductions for his baggies and his, you know, rubber bands or whatever you need to be a a good drug dealer. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so so the Congress said, well, this is outrageous. And remember, this is the height of the you know, this is Reagan. This is drug war time. War on drugs, yeah. Yeah, and so you know, Congress said it's outrageous. We need to change this. So they. They came up with 280E. Now, 280E at the time was because there was a, you know, a public policy against drug dealing. And so why should we give, uh, you know, quote unquote, drug dealers this advantage of being able to deduct their, their expenses? A lot of people don't realize that even if you're a criminal, if you're making income, you still have to file your tax returns, or at least that's Al how the government sees it. Yeah. <laughs> Al Capone learned that the hard way. Um. So, so you definitely, I, I, so basically they took away the ability for a, somebody that's trafficking in a schedule one or schedule two controlled substance to take ordinary or necessary business expenses on their tax return. So um, that obviously at the time was, it was never contemplated that we would have state legal cannabis businesses, that states would, and the voters of states would vote to legalize cannabis. Uh, obviously, you and I both know that the federal classification of cannabis as a Schedule One controlled substance under the Controlled Substances Act is a complete joke. It is yep. in the same class as like much harder drugs, um, and it really needs to be descheduled. Um, but because it's a Schedule One controlled substance, that means that if people that own marijuana businesses, the IRS considers them to be traffickers in Schedule One controlled substance being cannabis. Um, so they are subject to 280E and uh, they have had a field day um, in applying um, 280E to legitimate state legal cannabis businesses. Uh, we had sort of a, a case back in 2008, I think it came out, which is the CHAMP case, California's helping to relieve medical problems, where 
the facts were sort of supportive. There was um, of um, the, the concept of an allocation, meaning I don't spend all my time trafficking. I do other things. I have a separate trader business. So I should be able to at least allocate some of my expenses below the line and take them as a deduction and then have only some of them disallowed. That was really the only victory we have really had in the cannabis arena um, when it came. And, and I would say victory because it wasn't a fabulous victory, but it was a positive case, yeah. meaning that at least at the time, there was this concept that even though you might be providing cannabis to medical patients, if you provided other services, that there was this ability to allocate. Now that got completely wiped away um, a couple of years later by a case called um, Olive versus Commissioner, which which is a, um, it's also known as the vapor room case, but basically the same kind of argument was made. It was taken to, to tax court and, and basically they said, well, really all, the argument was, I, you know, yes, I provide other services. I let, you know, Vapor Room basically, they sold, they provided cannabis to medical patients, but they also had, um, you know, a meeting room where they allowed people to meet. They did movies, they gave popcorn, they let people drink tea, they taught board games, all sorts of fun stuff that they were also doing in their, uh, in their business. But the, but the tax court basically said, no, really, that's all, all, that's, that's not there isn't a real revenue stream there, and and it's really not a separate trade or business. You're just sort of it's sort of um, enhancing the sale of cannabis, so to speak. Got it. So you are really just a drug trafficker, <laughs> and so you're subject to ease. And ever since then, we've had a number of sort of bad outcomes in tax court, unfortunately. Um, but uh, what what it means is, <laughs> and this is unfortunate because I think a lot of states don't think about how the regulatory environment can affect a business's ability to um, to maybe operate a separate trader business. So in Colorado, for example, when we passed our, our cannabis uh, regulatory regime in 2010, um, you really couldn't have other trades or business. Like you had to be just providing cannabis. So there wasn't this option of what had existed before where you could actually maybe offer massage services or do yoga classes or do something within the same kind of facility. It, they really made it so you could only do one thing. Um, so, but 280E is tremendously detrimental to the cannabis industry. If, if it, I really think the, the, the um, sorry, my computer keeps. You're good. Kind of You're good. Um, so I really think that the federal government would actually collect more taxes if they got rid of 280E because what it is, is it's a subsidy for the black market. So black market people don't really file or pay taxes. So they're not feeling the effect of 280E. So where it's being applied is against these legitimate operators that have to play by these rules that have to be tax compliant, et cetera. And it really just serves to not allow a business to really operate efficiently. It doesn't allow a business to be able to reinvest. It doesn't allow a business. I mean, this is, this is how stupid it is, right? So if I have an employee in my dispensary and I want to give that employee some benefits like vacation pay or mm -hmm. health insurance, um, I have to sit down and recognize that because my employee is in the dispensary and is engaged in selling of cannabis, that that, that benefit that the government encourages 
is a disallowed expense under 280E. And therefore, I'm going to have to pay tax on that, conferring that benefit. Um, and so you look at businesses and you say, well, do you blame them for maybe not offering their employee health insurance because they have to pay tax on it? So it's going to cost them 35% more than it would cost any other business. And this is where the federal government cuts its nose off to spite its face, right? Because they're disincentivizing businesses from creating jobs, from job growth. And, you know, I always called it backdoor enforcement. The, 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 um, the people in these communities that have voted to allow medical or adult use marijuana would be outraged if the federal government came in with their tanks and their guns and started raiding marijuana businesses. So how can yeah. they shut them down through the back door by this very punitive tax policy? And it just doesn't make any sense. And I want to go back to why 280E existed in the first place. Public policy against drug dealing. Obviously, when you have 30-something states, plus how many states that have adult use, the public policy on cannabis has changed. There is no longer a public policy against can legal cannabis businesses. So yeah. it's just the whole congressional intent behind it, it doesn't make sense. It needs to go away. I think there are have been legislative solutions that have been sort of proposed, like the States Act, which was a co-sponsored bill but between um, Cory Gardner and Elizabeth Warren, which would at least allow it to not be classified as Schedule One in uh, states that have chosen to vote to legalize. There's other solutions out there that are have been proposed at the federal level. But I really honestly think, unfortunately, unless we get a more cohesive um, Congress, we probably won't see it change at least in the next six months. Um, yeah. But it does change. It does because it's just it makes no sense, especially in this environment where you have cannabis businesses that are operating as essential businesses and staying open and paying sales tax and paying special tax and all sorts of things. So I could go on and on and on, obviously, about this. And, and, and I might continue to egg you on on this path, too. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. The more and more I talk to folks like yourself, the more and more I learn about what, what these these obstacles really are, right? You know, we're already in an industry that it, it's not easy to access capital because you're not able to access the traditional financial markets, right? You can't access institutional capital. So a lot of these, these founders are selling off pieces of equity to raise money for their business. It's just now that, that there are some debt funds popping up and everything else, but you can't get a bank loan, right? You can't get a mortgage on your, on your building or anything else like that. So on top of the fact that they have a hard enough time accessing money, the federal government comes in and tries to take more and more of it. And like you said, does not provide incentives for them to become, I don't want to say legitimate businesses, but to offer benefits and to become these big corporations like that would eventually be a Pfizer, but in the cannabis space, right? So I want to take that and transition it. And, and typically I'll try to go along the journey here, but I want to kind of transition to something that's very topical. You mentioned it yourself. We had COVID hit. There's a pandemic now and cannabis businesses in just about every state have been deemed essential in one way, shape, or form, at least from the medical side. And then if I, if I remember correctly, the recreational side came, or adult use, as, as we should call it, came shortly after. But we look at what the pandemic has done to businesses, right? Cannabis touches three industries, in my mind, that are, quote unquote, have been touted by Wall Street as dying industries, right? Farming, logistics, 
and retail, right? That That's what cannabis is. We farm it, we figure out how to get it to the retail location, then we sell it in retail. Um, we've been deemed essential and now you have, I think, what, the, the, the CARES Act, or was that the right act? With the, whatever the stimulus money was, a $6 trillion uh, capital infusion into the economy. Well, where are we going to get that money from? We're going to get it from China again and just be under their foot? No, we're not. That's a terrible idea, right? So how do we get more taxes? Oh, I don't know. Maybe we should legalize cannabis. Why? Oh, so we can collect tax revenue from it. And oh, by the way, it's going to bring back jobs to our country. Well, what kind of jobs is it going to bring back? We have Google and Salesforce and everybody else. They're bringing these jobs, but there's a minimal level of education that you need to have to get a job at Google or get a job at Salesforce or Microsoft or any of these tech companies, right? And this is a rant that I've done on this show probably for the past five episodes in a row, but I just don't see why people can't take a step back and say, look at this industry. We've put all the cards against them. The deck is stacked against them. They can't access traditional financing. They pay higher taxes than anybody else. The regulations are constantly changing, and yet this industry is still thriving. Maybe we should let them be legit. Maybe we should deschedule. Maybe we should put some research into what this plant actually does. And oh, by the way, we're going to make a crap ton of money off of them because we're going to legalize it and then we're going to tax it, right? I just don't see you know, why that wouldn't be in an economic recovery plan. I, I recently did a little bit of research and by a little bit of research, um, I was, couldn't sleep one night and decided to hit the Google. Um, but, you know, part of the reason why they repealed the prohibition of alcohol is because they missed the tax revenue. They went, uh, was it eight or 12 years without any tax revenue from alcohol? And alcohol sales went up during prohibition, right? So they wanted the tax revenue from alcohol back. And what I don't think a lot of people realize is the repeal of the prohibition of alcohol is similar to how they're slowly repealing the prohibition of cannabis. Um, it was only 17 states that repealed alcohol to begin with. And those states started becoming more prosperous because they were getting that tax revenue. So this is the smartest thing I'll probably ever say on that show. But do you think there's any chance whatsoever that our geniuses sitting on Capitol Hill, and you don't have to be sarcastic like I am, but that the, the people sitting on Capitol Hill will think, okay, how do we pull out of what can potentially be another recession? Is this a viable option? Well, I think to come out of the recession, obviously, you have to approach it from many, many different ways. Um, you bring up the issue of ending prohibition, which I think is interesting now. The one thing that you have to understand about the tax question is not to tax it at such a level that it incentivizes the black market to thrive, right? So alcohol did it right because there's taxes on alcohol, right? But there are normal state taxes and there's probably taxes. I'm not an alcohol purveyor, so I don't yeah. really know how the tax yeah. structure works. But, um, you know, how many moonshiners do we know? I mean, how many how many how many of us are going to our friend's house and drinking like illicit booze? It's not happening. But but you have to be very careful about the tax question so you don't tax it in a way that incentivizes it to go back underground. So that's something we have to be so because right now I think we're getting, you know, in some states. You know, you go to a, a state like Colorado, you've got local special sales tax, you've got um, you've got tax, uh, a state special sales tax on, on recreational cannabis. You've got the ordinary state and local tax, and then you've got excise tax, which is being paid, you know, and increasing the price between the, you know, the, the, the growers and the, the retailers um, or the processors. 
And so the, the price of cannabis, remember, like people are price sensitive. So you have to be very careful about how it is taxed. And that's, that's a question yeah. I think about yeah. in the middle of the night myself. Um, so I think we have to be very thoughtful about it. And it can't just be, let's add another layer of tax on top of it. I think we have to, we have to make it so let's bring all of those illegitimate people out of the shadows, thereby building a robust, legitimate economy of cannabis. And then we, you know, we, we tax it or we don't regulate it like plutonium anymore. We actually regulate it in a normal, sensible manner. So I think we have to be thoughtful about that, that question. Now, you brought up one thing that I think is very interesting, which is these loans or right, this economic stimulus package, which, you know, I don't, I don't know if you know this, I assume you do, but the SBA. Well, that's kind guide- of, yeah loans and don't assume said, I know anything <laughs> <laughs> basically SBA said if you're an in a direct or indirect cannabis business you do not get to apply for these loans do you know what that means that means they if you receive any revenue from cannabis the cannabis industry you are not allowed to apply for these loans which wow. is ridiculous wow. and that's not what Congress intended there's actually a court case that's sort of moving its way up through um, it's now an appeal, or it's going to be appealed. But basically, the, the lower court judge, I think it was out of Michigan or Minnesota, I can't remember. But it was essentially, they also left behind businesses of a purient sexual nature, which would be uh, strip clubs. So the SBA actually said you can't apply for these loans if you're a business of a purient sexual nature. Well, yeah, I know. <laughs> so they challenged that. A group of strip club owners challenged that. And essentially the court said, no, the SBA went too far here with their guidance and leave, and the only requirement for applying for these loans is actually if you have a business that's 500 or less and you're in business, that's it. That's all that Congress wow. intended. If they wow. wanted to, they actually could have, could have said, you know, recognize the guidance, the SBA guidance, but they didn't intend to do that. So it's an interesting case because their question arose like, what about a CPA who provides services to the cannabis industry? That yeah. business can't apply yeah. for a loan. What about the Pizza Hut that's next door to the cannabis business? <laughs> like, there's all, it's just how far do you take it? It seems a little ridiculous to me. Um, and, you know, but that's what we're facing. We have so much stigma that there's like nothing can touch cannabis, but oh, yes, we'll take your tax revenue. I, I mean, that just, makes me so frustrated in so many ways. And this, I mean, the whole, this goes into banking as well, because the state, you know, for so many years, we didn't have any banks that were willing to take cannabis business um, yeah. banking yeah. banking accounts. But yet the state could take the, the tax revenue money in cash and then deposit that same money into their bank account, right? And that was yeah. okay, yeah. but it's not okay <laughs> that... So it's actually quite ridiculous in a lot of ways, but these are, this is what this, the stigmatization, the federal illegality has so many ripple effects throughout the industry. And you're right. It's sort of like, get out of our way. Let's, we, we actually are on the precipice of just a fabulous industry that can be so strong and can build jobs and can build communities and you can have good corporate citizens. Why is the federal government trying to frustrate this purpose with all its policies, failing to give stimulus money, loans, et cetera. I mean, it's, you know, no act, very little, few banks that are willing to give bank accounts. I mean, it's kind of silly in my mind. 
And, and all it does is really encourage people to continue to operate as the moonshiners, right? That's all yeah. it's doing. Yeah. And so I just, you know, I, I'm looking forward to it happening someday, but we actually have to be very thoughtful about it um, because we, we, could, we could do it wrong. Um, but alcohol is a yeah. good yeah. model. It, 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 you know, it, it, it's, it, it's weird to me, right? So I, I think, and, and, you know, my opinion, this is just my opinion, is that the, gen- the, the stigma is still out there, but the stigma is not nearly as strong as it used to be. Because when you talk to people about cannabis, and, and, you know, I told you, you know, my day job is I'm a technology consultant. And I can tell you, whenever I'm at a tech, con- a, a tech conference and I tell people that I've worked in the cannabis space, I'm, I all of a sudden I turn to the popular kid in high school and everyone wants to know about it. They want to talk about it. They want to understand it, this, that, and the other. You know, I've talked to lawyers, CPAs, what have you. Everybody's interested in this industry, but it always takes that one icebreaker to get people to open up about it. It's not something that people are having open conversations about unless you're in our industry, right? Or you're just someone who doesn't care. I would even go so far as saying that there are people in the industry still today that are afraid of the stigma. I'll be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm one of them, right? I still have kind of that old school mentality where it's like, I feel somebody out before I really talk to them about it. And I have a freaking internet show about cannabis, right? So it's not like someone can't go on my Facebook page and see it. But, you know, I think the stigma is real. And I think one of the other issues that we have is, you know, the advertising channels are restricted to us. And I understand not advertising to kids and things like that. That's 100% needed, right? We also don't advertise pornography and alcohol and, in theory, cigarettes to kids, right? But, you know, there aren't, there aren't many nationwide channels that we can leverage for education of how cannabis truly helps. I think what people also need to realize, and I I think I'm just kind of getting more into the advocate and, and being on my soapbox here than talking to you as the lawyer, but I think people need to realize like we're not sitting here and shouting, hey, let us all smoke joints and get stoned. No, there's a medical part of this. There's a wellness part of it. There are so many different parts of this plant and so many different cannabinoids that do so many different amazing things that we want to just create our industry. Candidly, I truly believe the recreational side of the industry will be the smallest part of it when we reach maturity, right? Um, I'm sure you know Bob Hoban. I'm sure you guys go way back, but him and I, when he he was on the podcast, one of the things that I'm most excited about is industrial hemp and not CBD. I'm talking about hemp fiber, making sustainable products out of hemp. I think that's probably going to be one of the biggest parts of the industry. So, you know, on that note, do you believe that the lack of the general education about this plant and the fact that it's been stigmatized for so long and even people in our own industry are hesitant to talk about it, do you think that kind of contributes to where we are today as a society in descheduling this substance? Well, yeah. I mean, our federal government doesn't want to research it. And, you know, it's, it's, that's been one of the biggest issues. Now, other countries, luckily, are researching the medical applications of cannabis, but we, as a society, our federal government can't continue to put their head in the sand. I mean, they can't even acknowledge the fact that it has medical efficacy and it's therefore not a Schedule One controlled substance, even though 33 states say something different, right? And, that it does And have don't they own a patent on it too? Don't they own, own a patent on... 
Yeah, it's just this incredible hypocrisy, but it's been propagandized. It's been obviously, um, you know, do you remember the egg in the pan and, you know, drugs are horrible. It's gonna <laughs> yes, I do. Yes, I mean, but the, and as a parent, I've always thought about this because, you know, I raised my kids and I was a marijuana lawyer when my kids were in middle school and high school. And, you know, I always was like, well, you just got to tell them the truth. You can't just continue to bullshit them because yeah. if they figure out that what you said was a lie, they're they're going to think you're lying about everything. I'm sorry. I don't know if I could say a curse word. On your show. You can. We're on the Internet. Okay. So anyway, I, I mean, it's just you've always got to be truthful and honest. And I think that's what the federal government is failing to do is being truthful and honest about cannabis. And we need to. That's why as an industry, you said it's spot on. We have to continue to educate people about this plant. We have to say, you know, that brochure that you picked up in the doctor's office says one thing. But let me tell you the truth. You know, there's this is it really can help you in certain ways and. You know, it's hard when you have a federal government that refuses to sort of give legitimate studies to cannabis for medical applications and instead just wants to study how bad it is and how harmful it is. And that's really the only way you can get government funding for a study on cannabis is to say, I'm going to study addiction, cannabis and addiction, or I'm going to study how, how bad it is for, you know, brains or whatever. And that's unfortunate because we're being left behind. Other countries recognize this. Other countries are willing to to study it. Um, but that's yeah. that's what we're dealing with. But we need a sea change. We really need um, we need to keep talking. We need to keep lobbying as an industry. Um, we need to keep getting out there and removing. I know you said I might not want to. You know, I have to feel the person out before saying it. Well, I'm not. You got to just say it <laughs> because. Yeah. You got. I mean, the people that you have to educate are the ones that might not be so cool and kind, right? Is yeah. the people that might. So, um, you know, keep talking about it. You're doing exactly what we need you to do, which is to have programs such as this to to be able to sort of talk about the different issues and to have different perspectives. Um, but yeah, yeah, there's a lot of misinformation. Well, I, I can promise you if doing this little web show is doing my part, then I am extremely happy to do my part, especially if I get to spend an hour and and pick the brain of people like you. Um, you know, I, I took this down a weird path. We ta- we touched on 280E um, and, and really went down more of the advocate path than the expert path. But, you know, you've done so much in this industry. It's so hard to just kind of zero in on, on a few things here. But I, I think you might have uh, touched on it before, but you're, you know, you've done something that I think everybody in the industry or not in the industry, everybody in, in the country would love to do. And, and I'm probably at the terminology here wrong, but you sued the IRS and won. Yeah. I mean, that's a little bit of a mischaracterization. I'll tell you what happened. So I actually, my client sounds better that way, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you what happened. Essentially, um, the, um, the IRS denied my client, All Greens, a penalty abatement. So my client was operating in cash, was making their tax deposits in cash at the IRS office, but otherwise on time. So was otherwise completely compliant, but was not using what's required, which is the electronic tax, federal tax payment system, which lo and behold, requires a bank account. You cannot yep. be on the electronic tax payment system 
unless you have a bank account. So this is an otherwise compliant taxpayer paying his employment taxes, paying them on time. Um, and essentially what I, he was getting penalized a 10% penalty every quarter for doing this. And I said, well, I'd like to ask for a penalty abatement. So that's what I did. I filed a penalty abatement request. They came back and they said, no, we can't give you a penalty abatement request. And I said, well, why? And they actually put in writing, and I'll have to dig it up, but it's one of the most hilarious things I've ever gotten from the IRS. Um, they gave me their internal guidance. Some poor woman on the phone actually faxed this to me, and I'm sure she's regretful <laughs> about it now. But she gave me their internal guidance, which was one of them, you know, they, they have sort of this way that if you have a question about whether you can do something, you can ask somebody higher up in the IRS, sort of, what do I do? So the question was, oh, you know, taxpayer is, you know, doesn't have a bank account, is otherwise compliant, but wants a penalty abatement, what can I do? Can I give them an abatement? And essentially, the answer was, well, no, because they have options. And they gave three options. They outlined three options. They said the option is, one, to, you know, tell them to give the cash to their lawyer or their CPA and have them make the, the tax deposits for them, which is, by the way, impossible and is also known as money laundering to some extent. So, and then, and then they said, um, uh, go to a check cashing company or something and have them like create a check or something. It's just the most ridiculous guidance. And then the other option was, oh, just pay the penalty. So it was, I mean, literally it appeared that they were sort of advising um, the taxpayer to really go launder their money through a third party and have them make the deposits on their behalf to some extent. Totally unworkable, can't be done, ethically wrong. So I, I uh, filed a case in tax court and I said that these, you know, they should otherwise be able to, to, um, uh, to get these abatements. And there was a rule at the time that, you know, you couldn't. So uh, the IRS quickly settled the case, which was great. And they actually had changed the Internal Revenue Manual and wrote a section, which is known as the unbanked taxpayer section, that actually allows the IRS to give abatements of penalties and to actually not even apply the penalties in situations where they know that the taxpayer is unbanked. So it, they actually wrote a whole new section in the Internal Revenue Manual and then also um, refunded all of my client's money uh, that he had paid in penalties in a check, which he then could not take to a bank because he didn't have a bank account. So uh, that's the story. And so that is a victory, I think, because I've, I have never lost on an abatement on behalf of my clients uh, that are paying in cash. Or, and, and bear in mind, this is also if you send in a check to the IRS. So if you're writing a check or sending in a money order, you're going to have this automatic penalty applied. And a lot of people in the industry or business owners do not know that you can avoid that penalty, which can 10% uh, if your tax liability for the quarter is $100,000 is $10,000. It can be a big yeah. penalty in yeah. a lot of cases. So uh, you know, tell people, they can call me if they have questions about it. I have forms. I can tell them how to do it to request the penalties on their behalf. I want to make sure everybody knows about this and that they can get um, these these abatements. Or they, there's a way you can file your return saying you're an unbaked taxpayer and hopefully they're not supposed to apply the penalty. 
So that is a victory in my mind. Uh, it made a lot of press and it kind of illustrated some of the stupidity about how the cannabis industry was treated. So I do think that was, that was a victory as well. So I, I would definitely count it a victory and, and to, to, kind of hammer home Rachel's point. If you're going to have someone take care of this for you, why not have the person who won the original case? So definitely reach out to her if you have this issue for sure. Um, listen, we, we spent a lot of time, like I thought we would, talking about what's wrong with the industry, which is why I wanted to get your original view. Um, you know, I, I make the joke in C-Lab and I got up on my soapbox that said, hey, you know, it, 15 years ago, I thought I was going to have to go to Amsterdam to enjoy it. 10 years ago, I thought I was going to go to Colorado to enjoy it. And today I can walk into a dispensary in the state of Florida and pick it up myself. So I call that a little victory in itself, but we still have a, a very long way to go. Just like you said, legalization is really just the first, not even legalization, getting it legal within each state is just the first step. Now we need to figure out a, um, proper way to regulate it and make sure that businesses can operate. I mean, I don't know, you know, I know Greenspoon has a, a major office down here in Fort Lauderdale and, and you guys are huge supporters of Cannabis Lab. So thank you so much for that. Um, you know, do you have any thoughts on our Florida cannabis market down here? I don't know if you if you pay attention to it too much. Uh, I, I kind of do. <laughs> I think Florida has some work to do. Um, obviously, you only have medical, so there's, yep. there's adult use. What I'd probably like to see in Florida is more opportunities for small business owners, for uh, more opportunities for people of color to get into the industry. Um, and I don't think that opportunity really exists in Florida right now um, because you don't have sort of a free market, which I think kind of not a lot. Uh, the thing that frustrates me a, a lot about sort of states, I'm always happy that p states have legalize cannabis in some form or fashion, whether it be medical, but how that licensing and regulatory environment works is very important. Yeah. And the one thing that I think Colorado did right, and to some extent California as well, because they're very similar models, is to allow local communities to have what's called the option. I mean, in Colorado, this isn't necessarily the case in states like Oregon, but Oregon has more of kind of a free market as well. But to have communities be the ultimate determining factor in whether and to which licenses to issue, where to issue those licenses, so zoning considerations, how many licenses to issue, et cetera. And then the state sort of says, you have to have a local license and a state license, but does the state doesn't ultimately limit how many licenses are issued. And I am not a fan, and people know this, of competitive licensing applications, meaning 100 people apply for 10 licenses and the most, the fanciest application that people dump the most money into wins. Yeah. I think we're, okay, I'm sorry, we're America and a little free market competition is good. And there should be opportunities for more than just a few in the cannabis space. And, um, you know, I think we, we have to think about social equity as we go forward. Um, and the thing I like about Colorado is that local community, when on day one of legalization of adult use cannabis, because you required a local license and a state license to operate, the number of jurisdictions that allowed for a licensing for adult use cannabis was like, 
I'm going to guess, 15. So there weren't a lot of jurisdictions. You had Denver, you had Boulder, you had a couple of few other outliers. But there weren't a lot of jurisdictions. But as time went by, and this is similar to sort of the end of Prohibition, as time went by, more jurisdictions said, well, you know what? They actually get some revenue from this, tax revenue from it. This can be done in a very a good way. Uh, we do see that these are good um, corporate citizens um, that can contribute to our business community. Um, they can enhance and build like and, and take over space sort of in warehouse districts to make grow facilities so that were otherwise empty. So I think people see, at least in Colorado, other communities decided that that was um, that that was kind of a good way to go. So at now we have, I don't know, 60, 70 jurisdictions that allow for cannabis businesses in some way. Um, and I think as time goes on, just like we've seen the end of, quote, dry counties in most states, I mean, I don't know if there's one even left in the United States, it's going to be the same way. But because this has been stigmatized, you know, for so long, I think it's okay to take a measured approach. Um, I don't like the concept of sort of, you know, a, an application is going to be a very expensive proposition yeah. because it leaves so many people behind that really could have good opportunities that might be good contributors in their community already, et cetera. So I like the way that Colorado has done it in that we don't have competitive licensing. If your, if your local jurisdiction has a license available, you can apply for it. It has to be in a certain zone. Usually you have to go through their local licensing process, but the state isn't going to tell you how many licenses are available and isn't going to give you some ridiculous application that, you know, is a thousand pages that someone arbitrarily has to judge and people lose by 0.001 of a point. I don't understand that. And I don't know why the industry likes that model. So, yeah, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of it either. Um, I can tell you that when Florida was talking about legalizing it here, my, my, my father actually knows a lot of people in the farm and nursery business down here. And I went to go look into the licensing process. And, you know, as I educated myself in the industry, I realized that I was so far away from being able to get a license. And I even knew that when they passed it in Florida, I think only about 30 farms in the entire state were actually eligible to apply for the license. So um, you know, it's a little ridiculous. And th there's one last question I want to ask you with, and I think I know the answer based on what you were just talking about. Um, I ask a lot of people on this show because each state kind of comes up with their own rules and regulations, right? Um, they, they, they all think they can do it better than the other ones, but nobody to me has really gotten it right yet. But I ask everybody, is there a state that has the best model right now that other states should emulate and should kind of be the basis for the federal program? And shockingly enough, most people do say Colorado. Would you agree with that statement? I would absolutely agree with it. I think Colorado had a lot of uh, learning to do. Um, I think we didn't get it right, right out of the gate, but we have done a tremendous job as a community, meaning industry participants, regulators, you know, the, the people that don't like cannabis, <laughs> the stakeholders have done a great job in trying to regulate this in, in a good way that works. I mean, I think you could walk down the street in Denver and it's not like the sky fell. Um, you know, I think we've had a lot of growth uh, in our, in our um, state 
since we've legalized cannabis. We have a lot of tourism. Uh, we have tax revenue that benefits the state. So I think Colorado is a very good model. Do I think it's totally perfect? Probably not, but we've done a lot of work. And I'm yeah. happy for us to copy what we've done. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. And frankly, I don't think there's anything wrong with a little free market competition because that serves patients and it serves consumers. Because if you have a sort of a monopoly or limited access, you know, how many strains are you going to grow? What if somebody's just bad at it? What if they don't do it right? I mean, so, but consumers can help guide the best people to sort of survive. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how no. our works. <laughs> so I don't see why we're afraid of that in cannabis, you know? So I- I would love to see more free market competition. Um, I think it's needed. I think what you guys have done in Colorado is great. Um, Denver itself has some amazing dispensaries. Uh, I'm going to shamelessly plug a couple friends or one friend, uh, Kaya Cannabis. You guys are doing a great job. I'm sure all of Rachel's clients are good too, but it's my show, so I get to choose who I shout out. Um, <laughs> with with that being said, Rachel, this was an awesome conversation. I'm, I'm so glad that we did this. I'm glad we were able to get you on the show. Um, listen, we, we've been doing this for over an hour, so I'm going to let you get back to your job because it's it's still work time there in Colorado, and I've got to put my little girl to bed. So uh, before we let you go, is there anything that you want to promote? You want to put your contact info out there? Just uh, take this time. Sure. Uh, anybody can contact me. My office number in, in Denver is 303-665-0860. Feel free to email me as well. I think my email is available on the Green Spoon Martyr website. Um, so please uh, reach out to to us and uh, we would be happy to assist anybody. Awesome. Well, thank you again. And we're definitely going to have you back on a future show because I think I probably only got through about 5% of the things that I want to talk to. And thank you again, everybody at home for watching another episode of Elevate Your Grind. If you enjoyed this episode, you right there, I'm looking at you again. I saw you. Please go to YouTube, search for Elevate Your Grind, hit the subscribe key. Once there's 100 of you, we can actually do a customer URL so I can actually tell you where to go. But for the meantime, YouTube, search Elevate Your Grind, subscribe. Um, If you guys want to check out C-Lab, you want to get more great content like that, you want to interact with people like Rachel, listen, I'm sure we can get her down to our conference whenever we're allowed to congregate again. But check out www.joincelab.com. We're running some specials on membership and we've got some great digital events coming up over the summer that are about to start going member only. So again, YouTube, Elevate Your Grind, joincelab.com. This has been another episode of Elevate Your Grind and we're out.